Good morning. This is Jay Westerveld with our weekly show, Tales and Trails. This is our third show, and I'm really excited uh, to introduce today's guest. My guest today is a very dear old friend of mine from the fourth grade originally, I think. Right, Mike? I believe so. Mike Mallon. Mike Mallon is a science teacher at James O'Neill High School uh, over next to West Point. He's been teaching for 35 years. Mike has his master's in biology and secondary ed. And he teaches Regents Earth Science and AP Environmental Science. He's uh, won a lot of awards. In 1998, he won the Outstanding Teacher Award from the Science Teachers Association of New York Southeastern Section, and on and on and on. Um, but the thing we're going to talk about today is species composition, meaning animals, plants in our region, and how it's changed in, in our lifetime, which is <laughs> over uh, half a century sorry mike that's uh, okay <laughs> for each of us and uh you know new mostly animals uh new animals in the area things we've lost and mike's a great guy to speak to this because aside from his academic uh credentials and his present job 35 years a uh, high school science teacher um regents and ap mike is also a sportsman and he's been really my best friend since childhood uh crawling around catching things going out uh sighting things uh seeing new species going in and out and more than ever with the pandemic people are getting out by nature and they're seeing more things and they have more questions and we've we've certainly heard more about that so with that mike uh good morning good morning thanks for having me sure sure so you know I'll, we we've seen a lot of changes when you and i were kids uh this part of new york state and certainly the tri-state region new york new jersey and connecticut had many different animals than it has now in your opinion mike what what's the biggest change what animal is is the most striking new uh species you know i'd have to say uh maybe one of the big factors is uh is an animal that's been here all along which is the white-tailed deer um and there are so many more we were just talking in some of my siblings the other day about growing up uh this would be probably the early 70s we would occasionally take a ride over to sterling forest on a sunday afternoon in the hopes of seeing a deer on the grassy uh roadsides sure when we were and kids like a lot of the the adults around here would go to hunting camps, deer camps yes. up in the Catskills, you know, to find a place to shoot deer. And now if I can get, you know, between the supermarket and home without hitting one with, with my yeah. truck, I'm, I'm lucky. You're doing well. Yeah. So I think um, that, I mean, that's just a massive population. And so they're out in the forest and in whatever habitats, eating a lot of vegetation, changing the nature of the understory. Um, and they're also on the roads getting hit by cars and um, providing uh, an, an opportunity for coyotes and lots of scavengers and ravens. Um, I never and, thought about that, actually. That, so part of the increase in coyotes could be attributed to roadkill deer. Perhaps, yeah. You I mean, know, they, they've moved east on their own, but now the, uh, the food supply is there. So interesting and yeah really easy to get to i and i you know i see red-tailed hawks which most of us associate with being hunters um often taking carrion on the side of the road like vultures often alongside vultures and you know speaking of vultures 
There's a new species here in this part of New York or in New York State altogether since the late 80s, and that would be the black vulture. When right. did you first see them, Mike? I mean, here. Um, so I only came back for, for good in the late 80s. Um, and so, yeah, that's about right. Maybe even close to 1990. Yeah. And, and specifically uh, in Warwick, as opposed to um, very nearby. I lived in Chester for a long time. I had lived in Slotesburg, but always coming through the farmland uh, in Warwick, uh, I'd start to notice black vultures. Uh, now they're through the area there. There's a huge population around Bear Mountain. That yeah, enormous. Hangs, around the, <clears throat> hangs out around the bear habitat. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, when yeah. you go to the Trailside Museum, which we just call the Bear Mountain Zoo, and you go to the big famous bear enclosure, which is sort of a pit, you know, it's kind of, right. it's like something out of Star Trek when you look down in there into this rocky pit with these big uh, bears. But it's mostly black vultures. It is covered in black yes. vultures. And, and you sort of say, well, this is the wrong sign. And oh, by the way, what are those big woolly things next to the vultures? <laughs> exactly. You know? They should change the sign. Uh, we did with some students a cleanup there um, last fall. And, um, and that was one thing that was pointed out to us is that the black vultures, they weren't there in numbers that day, but they just flock in. Um, in and there, you know, there's a food supply, I suppose, in, in the bear pen, but... Yeah, they're just I, everywhere in, in the region. And they're different than turkey vultures, and turkey vultures seem to be learning from them. Turkey vultures uh, classically are a more skittish animal, and black vultures aren't. They're, you know, and they're kind of pushy and obnoxious, uh, literally obnoxious. And you'll see black vultures sort of refusing to leave roadkill uh, when you approach it on foot or on a bicycle. And now the turkey vultures are that way. But you mentioned something interesting with the deer, Mike, and this is something I'm so glad you said, and I don't know if we've ever talked about it much, but the greatest driver in species composition change in our region, in my opinion, is the white-tailed deer because as they, you know, a lot of plant species, and you know, I, I always sort of roll my eyes with the expression invasive species and you know, maybe I'm right sometimes, I'm probably wrong a lot of the time. But what I see is people referring to as invasive plants, plants that seem to be taking over and choking out the others, to me are often the plants that white-tailed deer just don't eat. And they eat so many right. of our tastier native plants. They do, that's always said about the barberry in the Harriman State Park system. Sure. And uh, it's worth noting and I don't think we feel exactly the same way about introduced species, but no, no, for sure. We, we share. Uh, there's a there's a Venn diagram to be made there. So um, invasive <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean uh, not native, right? And so the deer uh, have become the invasive species uh, in in many ways. Um, and what we have um, are plants that can and can't adapt to that browsing pressure. That's Maybe really they're well just lucky enough to be uh, bad tasting to the deer. And so they're the beneficiaries, whether they're introduced or they're natives. That's a great point. And, you know, one thing, and, you know, there are some things I almost don't want to mention because I'm afraid if I ever want to uh, include them in a paper, somebody will jump it. But I'm, I'm not going to. So if you go to Central Park, the species composition is so similar to here, except the absence of white-tailed deer. Hmm. 
So when I like to go to Central Park to walk around the Ramble because it reminds me of what forests and uh, wetlands looked like here when I was a child oh. before we had so many deer. And interesting. It, yeah, it's I at least also, I see it that way. You know, talking about change over time when we were younger um the uh there was a lot more farming that was either recently abandoned or was <clears throat> was still ongoing. And um I know that the earliest European explorers who came to this area described the forests as being very park-like, very open because of the burning, right. uh, annual burning that the, the native Indians would do. Um, and now there's been, there's been a shift away from agriculture. Sure. Fortunately, we have some preserved land here. Thankfully. But very little uh, meadow and, or open understory forests uh, of the sort that would have been here hundreds of years ago. And I know it's artificial, but the kind you'd see in Central Park. That's a great point, because if I want to see red-headed woodpeckers, people often see red-bellied woodpeckers or pileated and say, oh, they wow. They call them red-headed, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they do have red on their head, but actual red-headed woodpeckers, there, where I grew up, right in Sugarloaf on the border, there was a, an open forest uh, behind the banker farm where we had a lot of red-headed woodpeckers and also over by Glenmare Lake. Which, which border was Sugarloaf on the... <laughs> the Sorry. Yeah, no, it's uh, by the Lewis farm. So where Warwick and Chester meet there. Um, because before <laughs> oh, the there Warwick was... the Warwick border. Yeah. Okay, Warwick. gotcha. <laughs> it, was a, it was on the border with uh, Slovakia. And there were a lot of red-headed woodpeckers there. Like they, they weren't quite colonial, but there, there were quite a few, sort of like how acorn woodpeckers are in the West, in the West. Mm -hmm. and they're gone. If I want to see them, I go to Central Park. Wow. It's kind of strange. So uh, I'll tell you what, when we uh, come back after a quick word, we'll talk more about that. Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York, for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. This is Clark Howard. It is a complete, utter, total ripoff. You're going to be paid a pitiful number of pennies on the dollar and totally eat up your future. Clark Howard, weekdays from 1 till 3. Hi, this is Dick Robinson. Please join me for two hours of the Great American Songbook every Saturday morning at 5 here on WTBQ. Dick Robinson's American Standards by the Sea. WTBQ. And we're back with Tales and Trails. I'm Jay Westerveld. This is our weekly show where we talk about nature, history, and world events primarily. Um, our guest today is Michael Mallon. A, an award-winning science teacher, 35-year high school teacher over at James O'Neill High School, and a phenomenal tracker and spotter. Um, 
past sportsmen when we were children. I don't know if you hunt much anymore. No, not anymore. But yeah, Same here for the most part. Um, overseas I do, I think, a lot more than I do here. And we were talking about white-tailed deer and how they've changed species composition of other um, critters here in the area. And during the break, Mike and I were quickly talking about ticks um, because when I was a kid, well, I never saw a tick in this part of the world. No, maybe once or twice a wood tick on one of our dogs. Yep. Um, or a dog tick on some of the wood. Exactly. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I, the first time I remember really seeing ticks was 78, a deer uh, shot. And that was it, you know, that, and I thought, wow, a, a tick, just like in a, you know, a, a story from Southern Grotesque or, you know, from uh, Tom Sawyer. And ticks, as we were talking about, are often blamed for, uh, ticks. A deer are often blamed for really moving Lyme around, uh, Lyme disease, which right. is such yeah, a... with the black-legged ticks. Sure. Mm -hmm. But Mike, you were uh, citing something else as well. Well, again, it relates to our sort of theme about the habitat changing over time. And we have, um, we have a more fragmented landscape and people living among the forest. And... Um, but not, not, not yeah, American Indians living among right. the forest, <laughs> like that, you know, more bucolic sound. And, and this, this fragmented uh, forest habitat, which is recently just recovered from being completely eradicated um, 100 years ago, the forest was gone, it's grown back. And so we have more forest now than we had, say, in, in 1900. Great point. Uh, but it's fragmented, so there's more edge habitat, and that provides for more rodents, uh, specifically mice, that are really effective carriers of both the... Um, almost said the virus, but the, uh, well, the spirochete and the, and the tick. Sure. And then you put those in close um, proximity with population. Which they are. And, um, and we have this massive <clears throat> spread of, of Lyme disease. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Now, again, when we were kids in a house, we'd often see house mice, which are the introduced Eurasian right. uh, little gray mouse. Now in houses, I rarely see house house mice in this part of the world, and almost only white-footed. Certainly mice. not in my house, <laughs> no, <clears throat> or mine. No, <laughs> never, never. I have a cat, so I, you know, I, I I have an excuse. But the white-footed mice are absolutely everywhere. In fact, they destroy cars over the winter. Yes, yes, I've uh, had that experience. Yeah. And you know, they're they're tremendous carriers of the ticks, and it's almost like the deer. You know, deer moving into a landscape the way the deer have here more so may have brought more ticks, but it's the white-footed mice that sort of scatter them and bring them closer to our homes and to our yards and, and things. Right. And also, you know, you mentioned changes in the 1900s when things had been deforested for the most part. And it's interesting to note as well that, you know, people tend to think, well, everything looked like this. The way nature was, the way the landscape was when I was a child is how it had been for hundreds of years. And that's certainly not the case, you know, and you bring up an amazing point that I almost never hear that we have more forests now than we had, say, one, 200 years ago. But also here in New York State, things like timber rattlesnakes, which probably used to be a lot more common, could help to keep the uh, mouse populations down. Sure. bobcats you know um things like that which there were more of probably did a better job but the state of new york actually offered bounties to kill timber rattlers you know 100 years ago right yeah so um 
that's 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 an important point. Um, w- to get to a species we were going to talk about this morning, coyotes. Oh, have, yeah. They've moved in, and it's it's really great to see them, and they're they're just uh, amazing, amazingly well adapted. But there's really compelling data. I can't cite the source off the top of my head that when coyotes move in <clears throat> to a region, they tend to drive the foxes out, and there is a very close correlation with uh, the prevalence of coyotes and the incidence of Lyme disease. Really? In other words, there's more Lyme when there are coyotes or right. less? The, the, there's more because the coyotes, although they'll certainly eat mice, they are nowhere nearly as effective at controlling mouse populations as the smaller predators that they drive away, sure. the foxes. That's, um, so you would think that. that Lyme cases, I think in the popular imagination, Lyme incidents would correlate closely with deer population. But it, it doesn't by any of the data you can collect, like how many deer are hunted, uh, how many how many road kills happen. Sure. You can track the population that way. But there is a close correlation. Doesn't mean it's cause and effect, but it's a correlation. When coyotes move in and foxes move out, Lyme cases go up. That's fascinating. And as you and I know, <clears throat> not only do foxes move out, but coyotes tend to almost specialize in in them. You know, they mm-hmm. they like the taste of them, just like small dogs cats coyotes are crazy about and i'd I'd never heard that and that that is you know a compelling correlation it definitely makes a lot of sense to me right yeah and that's one of the things it's very rational uh is it proven you know so it's but it makes sense um that that's interesting And, and coyotes like yourself i love them but i do notice the big change when the coyote, we suddenly had a lot of coyotes, that's when there was Lyme left and right. And, and Lyme is very poorly understood on numerous levels. And in, a, in another program, we'll talk more about the ecology of that um, and the epidemiology of Lyme. But another interesting thing, Mike, and again, this is one of these things I'd rather not mention uh, publicly because I, I've always thought, boy, this would be a great research paper. I want to put my name on it. You and I have a mutual friend uh, to whom you introduced me, Pete Warney, uh, amazing naturalist. Sure. And there's that wild story about Pete Warney checking, I think it may have been a vulture nest, on the Torn over by Bear Mountain. Yes. And finding himself covered in, I think, chiggers? Chiggers. Which and is you amazing. Know, you know, that might be Tom Cunningham. Okay, it was Tom Cunningham. Yeah. I, that's right. I'm thinking of Pete Warney with the duct tape and the, the well, chiggers and stuff. I've never, I've never seen a chigger uh, or been bitten by one. Um, I know it's a southern thing. But uh, black vultures have spread f- from the south. And I don't know if, if that's... I just don't know much about chiggers. Um, it's interesting, though, that we've got We've got black vultures coming from the south and ravens coming primarily from the north. Right. Um, we're <clears throat> we're at the, at the uh, crossroads. We we for really these species are species movements. You know, it's funny you say that too because in so many ways, this region, the Greater New York City region, is really a, a, an ecotonal crossroads. One interesting thing uh, about the black vultures that I've often thought is since they've moved into the area. Um, at about the time when we started seeing more coyotes, perhaps a little later, if they've been feeding on carcasses on their way up of you know roadkill, roadkill deer, and those carcasses have ticks, which are often abandoning ship, they tend to do that when the animal's heart stops sure, beating and the yeah. pressure isn't there to help them feed. 
And they are covered in ticks of black vultures and turkey vultures as well. If you look at a road-killed turkey or black vulture, you'll, you'll see them. Perhaps even one of the things that's actually even brought them up here. I, you know, I don't know, but it, it could be one, one driver. But to have a... I know I haven't heard a good, a, a, a good story for why suddenly black-legged ticks are just everywhere. Right. And um, to me, you know, the one that would make a lot of sense, totally hypothetical is that the black vultures could, you know, southern avian species, you know, moving, covering a lot of ground and landing on and feeding on dead animals all the time may have brought them and just as likely may not have. But this change in the, the composition of bigger species certainly brings these changes with arthropods and then the parasites of those arthropods, such as the, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi, the uh, Lyme disease, sure. and worse yet, the co-infections, the other bacteria parasites and viruses that ticks carry. And this is one of the problems when people go to the doctor and they get a negative Lyme disease result. Well, what about the other, you know, critters? Right, and still feel crummy and yeah, what's and wrong. Yeah, worse, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're not being tested for everything. But getting back to, uh, you know, these critters locally. So the coyotes, I had never heard that theory and it really makes a lot of sense to me, an awful lot mm -hmm. of sense. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that to be invasive, a species doesn't have to be alien. It can be a native American species. And again, that guy, Pete Warney had pointed out to me, even with fish species, we have fish that they're North American, they're even Northeastern, but like just bass, largemouth bass are introduced into basins where they don't come from. Right, right. So they become hugely invasive, and yet they're a sport fish, and it brings people to the community to uh, to fish, to spend money. So sure. we don't. It's a it's a judgment um, we make when we call something invasive. Sure. Um, and as I've I've said before, um, you know, honeybees aren't native uh, sure, species yeah. at all. Um, apples, uh, most edible apples aren't. Any apple that turns red is not native here. Um, and as far as fish, you know, brook trout, they're introduced from uh, other basins. Usually our, our regional brook trout come from Long Island, from those uh, okay, stocks. I didn't realize but, that. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of strange. And they're actually a char, a true char. Rainbow trout are uh, a Western West species. Coast, yeah. And brown sure. trout, you know, Eurasian. You know, they're not even a, a North American species. But those aren't really things that we notice so much. How about all the chipmunks and all the squirrels? Well, um, we have bird feeders and a stone wall where I live, so we're <laughs> inundated with chipmunks and squirrels both. Um, sure. I, I don't know if I've seen changes other than larger populations, and I, I don't know what I would attribute that to, except the maturing of the forest That's and the food point. supply. Um, uh, what I've been surprised lately, um, spending a lot of time on State School Road and around Wickham Lake, is uh, red squirrels in these lowland swamp forest habitats when they're the the heart of their um, their territory typically is uh, a boreal forest. Sure, and usually pine, uh, you know, spruce, fir, pine. Right, right. <clears throat> I've noticed that as well. They become more of like this wetland species locally, or lowland species, yeah. and they're everywhere. And they also, they have really bad luck with roads. For some reason, they're constantly crossing roads and being hit by cars. But red squirrels have definitely moved in in an enormous way. What about bear? People are mentioning well, bear sightings more than ever. Yes, and you speak about, about growing up hunting and being sportsmen. Um, and there was no bear season in this part of Orange County uh, in, into the 80s. 
Um, that's amazing. That's a yeah, great point. We yeah, the dividing a- line, I, I believe, was kind of that the, where you cross to the Delaware watershed. Right. Uh, out there by Pine Bush or so. But uh, yeah, bears just weren't a thing. It would be a, it would be a newspaper headline if a bear wandered through uh, a community. And it was. And it was, yeah. And now they're just, you know, you can't leave your garbage out and uh, just... I mean, my students regularly, because it's so exciting to see a bear. Sure. They regularly come in and, um, you know, report a bear in their neighborhood or it's going garbage can to garbage can in Fort Montgomery or right on post in West Point or right yes. in, the, in the center of Highland Falls. They're, they're everywhere. When I'm here in the winter, um, I'm at West Point, obviously, uh, skiing. And constantly they're crossing the trails and, and it's not like they're running across, like they're in a hurry or saying, oh gosh, I have to get out. They're sauntering. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, guys watch out for me. You know, it's kind yeah. of interesting. And the Eagles uh, over at West Point are phenomenal. And now just everywhere. Mm-hmm. We didn't have those around here when we were no, kids. No, we, we certainly didn't. And um, I think uh, you had pointed out at one time, we're maybe seeing a, a big rebound from what happened in the mid 20th century with the uh, uh, massive use of pesticide. Sure, and, the DDT especially. You know, and then the, uh, the change over from farming the landscape to a much more mixed, uh, mixed habitat with secondary growth forests. Um, sure, so. you know, this is one of the things where, where we grew up here in Warwick, um, which, which makes Warwick great for nature watching, is that there are so many preserved farms, you know, and right. it's, it's sad whenever we lose a farm including our black dirt farms, which bring in a totally different species. And we'll get back to that after a quick word from our sponsors. Super. Sam's Meat has been supplying restaurants and shops with the highest quality local and sustainably sourced prime and choice wholesale meat, steaks, poultry, seafood, and much more for over 20 years. Whether you're a small family butcher shop or a busy steakhouse, expect A1 service and the finest products available. Call Sam's at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off Route 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Hi, this is Michael Newhart, Mayor of the Village of Warwick, inviting you to tune in every Thursday at 11 a.m. to Village Life and learn about the village happenings. Call and share your ideas, comments, and suggestions, and be part of the show with me and Mary Kalura. Hi, this is David Dirks, the host of the Dirks Outdoor Show. Call in as we discuss everything for the outdoor sportsman every Saturday at 7 a.m. Radio worth listening to. WTBQ for this afternoon, mostly cloudy skies, maybe some peaks of sunshine at times, a high of 60 to 65. For tonight, we'll see some drizzle, maybe some patchy fog, cloudy skies, 50 to 55. Tomorrow morning, much the same, then a drier second half of the day, upper 60s near 70. And in the evening, another cloudy night with areas of fog could be dense in spots, along with some patchy drizzle, low around 55. From the WTBQ Weather Center, I'm WeatherWorks meteorologist Michael Prianti. WTBQ. And we're back with Tales and Trails. I'm Jay Westerveld. That song, by the way, Fistful of Dollars, one of my favorites. Um, we had we had a hard time finding an instrumental version, but Taylor 
did the homework. Uh, she's amazing. And she found that. Um, I do another show. I'm a permanent guest on Stephen Keeter's show on Saturdays, which is a little different than this. We mostly talk about more hyper-local project stuff, land use stuff. This show, we talk a lot about, uh, again, nature, history, and world affairs. And Mike, during the break, you and I were talking more about some changes and the overall flux and biodiversity. And before we go into that, a lot of people don't understand what the term biodiversity means. They think it just means a lot of animals. So people will say, oh, I went to Yellowstone. The biodiversity was so high. I saw thousands of bison, you know, and I saw a lot of, a lot of interesting eagles and all. What biodiversity means, and I'm sure most of the listeners realize this, but just to make sure we're all clear, is that how many types of animals there are. If there's many, many different types, that's high biodiversity. If there's just, you know, a few types, that's low biodiversity, even though there may be more animals. And often like a desert ecosystem will have a rather low biodiversity, even though there are a lot of interesting sure. animals that you see. And Mike, you were mentioning some changes to biodiversity locally here. Right, well, um, we've seen, uh, again, in our, our decades of observing locally, we've seen some significant shifts, um, uh, some species moving in. And, and honestly, it's mostly, uh, I don't wanna say mostly for the positive because we certainly have declines in abundance uh, some locally extirpated populations of reptiles and amphibians. And Mike, let me just interrupt and explain. Extirpated means something that's gone from one region. So it's not totally extinct from the world, but it's gone from an area where it used to be. So that's an extirpation or an extirpation event, just so that people understand. Right, yes, thank you. Yep. So um, for example, our rough, rough grouse, a, a rough grouse seen anywhere, in in the county would trigger a rare bird alert it's um, interesting because both you and i hunted them as kids and we had all three color completely unsuccessfully <laughs> i had some success my big brother was much better with a shotgun i was a horrible shotgun yeah i was a rifle guy but yeah um but there were so many and in the springtime we'd hear their that really interesting uh, breeding call the males would the, do the drumming the that drumming mm -hmm. sound yes Yep. They're gone. They're totally gone. And, you know, it's funny. It's almost like a, a semi-political lobby that says, well, they're gone because of the way the farming has stopped and all. To me, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong or if you disagree a lot, Mike, but I see it as a white-tailed deer once again, removing the understory and making these browse lines in the tree. By that, I mean the deer will eat the um, boughs off of a lot of evergreen trees to about yeah four to six feet you high. You can really see that in in suburban neighborhoods where a hedge is is stripped up to the height a deer can reach. That's right. You see these um, people who yeah. make privacy hedges of hemlock, yes. and there's no privacy at all until you're six feet and up. An individual tree looks like a candle because it's it, been completely stripped. Very Dr. Seuss looking, yeah, even like exactly. topiary. Mm -hmm. And the, so the grouse no longer have cover from these other predators, including our friend the coyote, and, and certainly other things. Sure. Um, but grouse are gone, and I never thought that would happen. Right, completely gone, and and yet we have uh, large populations of wild turkeys. Aye, and you know, I've read, and sort of, you know, I don't want to add too much anecdotal uh, observation that isn't backed up with a lot of publication. But turkeys are known to destroy grouse nests. Have you ever heard that? I no, I don't know about that. They're, yeah. 
and turkeys are kind of strange and they were an introduction uh, to the region, which a lot of people don't yeah, realize. Reintroduction, reintroduction. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Yes. Uh, sort of a rewilding, um, <laughs> but Turkey were reintroduced here when we were kids. There were none. I'm trying to think. I mean, I was, I don't know when teens. it was the first time I saw one, but it wasn't probably until the eighties. Yeah. The 1980s. Yeah. So, and they have changed things you a have lot. To specify which century we're talking about. Just, <laughs> which yeah, of the centuries the we've 1980s, been alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, turkeys are, are, and they're, you know, egregiously abundant. They're absolutely they're everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. They really are. Yeah, which is great. It's great. It's great to see. Um, yeah. I, they do seem to have an impact on some small amphibians though i know sometimes some mm -hmm. guys uh they'll cut open the crop that's a little pouch in their throat where they collect gravel to help uh break up meat from animals they've eaten and um, believe it or not turkeys do eat meat and also for breaking up nuts and things like that and they'll find a lot of salamanders and frogs in there and i've, I've actually did you say frogs <laughs> i did mike <laughs> i knew we'd get to the frogs <laughs> yeah, unavoidable it's, again it's it's a change set in motion to um i don't know the uh, trying to re restore a species that had been uh extirpated from the state and yet there is uh, a consequence for that yeah so yeah. you can never you know it's it's an old worn out environmental saying but you can never change just one thing because there's a there's a ripple effect that's excellent that's really well yeah. said yeah you, you can um, one of our really famous at least in the media the uh, endangered species the bog turtle um other than being um uh what's the word over harvested by unscrupulous um collectors uh is suffering from the um, decline of our dairy farming. That's a great point. Um, it really is. You know, they benefit from that kind of habitat because once you stop farming and let the canopy close in on their special kind of wetlands, which of course aren't bogs, um, <laughs> then they'll leave and there's no place to leave to anymore. Yeah. And so classically they say that before there were so many of us here, um, you know, uh, Europeans, that bog turtles as a wetland would succeed and fill in with red maple and then other things they just continue moving away from that shady canopy and sure. stay in the wet area and sort of move with it and it's likely that if we were to look at a um a time lapse something sped up of the maps we'd see their their populations moving away from where it would become forested and then they might come back to the center that as that forest would die off that can't happen anymore because of fragmentation. Bog sure. turtles will exist. You know, they'll put in a housing subdivision and planning around here and say, well, there's bog turtles. They're in a wetland in the center. We'll leave that alone. Everything will be okay. And we say, sure, it'll be okay. Then immediately Phragmites, you know, the sure. uh, uh, rushes, the big tall plants, uh, reeds, I should say, common reed. And cattails and things, they make it shady so that the eggs cannot hatch well typically or if mm -hmm. they do if the eggs do mature because bog turtles don't bury their eggs down into the dirt they lay them on the tussocks the little clumps of sedge grass sort of in the moss or in some of the grass and the temperature around turtle eggs actually dictates what sex they'll be right 
And with bog turtles, you might wind up with all of them, actually usually all of them perishing because of the shade or becoming one sex, and then we lose the population over time. And there's nowhere for that population to move to because they're surrounded by suburbia. So we're effectively, even though it's a feel-good measure to say, oh, we're protecting that habitat in the middle of that housing subdivision, that habitat's doomed. Sure. You know. And, yeah, and you know, that's it's a really interesting point, and I think it's something um, I'd like to uh, deal with with students who are just learning this material in in a book and it's kind of presented at a surface level but uh, it's easy to be introduced to something like the bog turtle and if you tell um well it doesn't have to be a student just anybody who doesn't know bog turtles well these are the exact characteristics that it needs to survive you'd think well that's that's so narrowly adapted no wonder it's endangered and you have to imagine a world in which specialization was okay because the landscape would be changing through natural cycles. A beaver would come in, build a dam, <clears throat> all of those red maples would be drowned or whatever species. But sure. let's say your, your wetland had succeeded to red maple, then it gets flooded later by beavers to the point where even the red maples uh, can't survive. And you start that process of ecological succession over again. And through that, the bog turtles can wander the landscape and uh, by chance uh, find the habitat requirements that they need to be successful. So um, the specialization only becomes a handicap in a, in a world that's so modified by human activities. In a world modified by <laughs> human activities. I don't mean to joke about it because it kind of isn't funny, but it is the reality. Um, that, you know, so much human activity is going, you know, it's unavoidable. We're the dominant species. That's not about to change really soon. But it seems like we are the primary drivers of all of this species change. And, you know, sure. you again mentioned that succession is natural. Specialization follows succession, I think you're sort of saying. Well, yes, uh, in, in a way, a, a species that's specialized for a, a particular stage in succession. And some of the famous ones, the Carner Blue Butterfly in New York State, a, oh, sure. a state endangered uh, butterfly that needs um, uh, early successional pine, pine barren, pine barren habitat. Um, so that's a fire dependent ecosystem. And if you just protect it, those trees are gonna get older and older. They're going to shade out the understory where the lupin is growing. Sure. And um, lupin is a beautiful flower that these butterflies, uh, is it an obligate food source for them? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where there has to be some kind of management. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you think, well, that's how ridiculous that evolution would result in a species that only lives in pine barrens up to, say, 20 years old. I'm throwing out a, right. a, a random number there. But again in a more natural environment there would be um there would be occasional lightning started fires and somewhere sure. there would always be habitat for that species so um, getting it back to things locally and where people can observe nature especially anything peculiar or out of the ordinary mike do you have some favorite spots here uh, north of new york city uh, we're an hour north of new york here in warwick any spots in our region overall that you like the best to see anything well um because I live on the other side of Sugarloaf, um, Goose Pond State Park, Goose Pond Mountain State Park. I know it's not Warwick, it's Chester, but uh, 
that's uh, an incredible place because it has so much meadow habitat. Great point. Most of our parkland uh, or preserves are forest. And there you have the whole range from wide open meadows to, um, to fairly mature forest. Yeah, and it's um, rare because, you know, Goose, Goose Pond Mountain State Park, it's between Blooming Grove, Chester, and it's on the border of Monroe if it's not correct. even directly yep. in it. It's, it's interesting because it's buildable land. It's prime buildable land. And of course, in our region, that's what we lose right away. So we have this upland rocky terrain that's not so great to live on. So we have a lot of that and that's where we go to see nature. Nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of interesting things sure. up there. But it's rare that we can see, as you say, this meadow habitat and that. That's wooded. right, yeah. And in fact, if you're looking for old growth forests, the only place to find old growth is where it's too steep for people to have built or to have farmed. And that's why Great there's- point. Not much of it anyway, but yeah, in Goose Pond, um, uh, it's quite a recent creation. I think it dates back to only about 1960 or so. Even later, um, possibly, into yeah, the 60s. I think so, yeah. So there are readily identifiable home sites there. And um, of course, the fields that were were, were grazed and, and plowed. Um, and we'll get back are, to are more still of that fields. in right. just a sec here. Sam's Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. This is Michael Sweeten, supervisor of the town of Warwick. And this is your favorite assemblyman, Carl Bravidick from the 98th District. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. where we will be discussing federal, local, and town issues. Right here on radio, worth listening to. Hi, I'm Dave Edwards, and I invite you to join me every Sunday night when we'll showcase a perfect album. I'll start with side one, track one, and we'll play every song in order from the record. A few bonus songs, as well as some trivia too, right here on Radio Worth Listening To. And we're back with Tales and Trails. This is Jay Westerveld, and this is our show about nature, history, world affairs. And my guest today is educator Mike Mallon, environmental educator, 35-year high school teacher at James O'Neill. And we've been talking about species composition, meaning plants and animals, how it's changed in the area, how it changes even outside the area for quite a ways out. And now we're talking a little more about interesting places to see things. And we were talking about Goose Pond Mountain State Park. Anyone can Google that. Um, if you're in New York City and you'd like to see an interesting place of what uh, a lot of buildable areas would look like if, if homes weren't built there. We also have nearby the Walk Hill River Refuge where Mike, we've bumped into each other. We have, yes. <laughs> it's a great place. Um, what, and, and that's on the border of New York and New Jersey between Sussex County and Orange County, Warwick and technically Sussex uh, respectively. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything specific you like there, Mike? Well, it, it's, it's wetlands, it's a lot of wetlands, and um, it's the place where local 
observers are most likely to see sandhill cranes, which is a recent addition to our fauna. Yeah, breeding uh, at least, there. At least as a regular as a regular thing. Yeah, and they're actually, they bred there. They mm -hmm. successfully nested there this last year. So, yeah, and I, I often run into uh, really serious uh, bird watchers, which is my preferred term. Sure, not, sure. Not birders. Yeah, uh, I don't say birder. I don't, yeah. you know, as, as soon as someone uses the the moniker birder, I'm thinking of somebody who does counts, who's just trying to say, well, I saw that, I saw that, and they move on. Whereas a bird watcher is somebody who might linger and sort of study something and say, yeah. hey, that's kind of pretty, let's watch it. There was a- I my, like that, although most of the birders I've met are, they're, they're really great people who- 99% you know, for the whole yeah oh gosh yeah yeah picture I just the expression bothers me in fact there was a <laughs> there was a comedy movie with some of the people from oh the big year the big year yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that covered birders you uh, bet you yeah. bet the book was fantastic oh you actually read it yes you read every, Mike how many books do you read a year I I don't know I don't count but <laughs> because you're not a birder or a booker you're there to enjoy <laughs> the book not to count That's them it. um you saw a roseate spoonbill, I mean, yes. along with other people, uh, two years ago? Two years ago, I believe. Uh, it was a sensation. And um, we met people from really far away who had driven like from the farthest point of Long Island just for the day, just to spend a half an hour, see the spoonbill. And, uh, That's insane. But it was, it was incredible to see. Um, I, but I didn't want to get into that, that kind of birding that I don't really... Right, appreciate. Right. Yeah, you know. that's sort of, you know, where you're just looking for extremes. Um, what can people do to uh, encourage good nature in their their yards? By good nature, I mean, you know, not bring bears in to knock things over. Right, yeah, leave your garbage cans out at night. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have lots of nature. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I, do, I do feed the birds, bird sure. feeders. Um, and... Uh, try to do that in a way that all of the the bears and the other mammals can't get at it and i don't see any i know some people might discourage that you can set the birds up to be victims of a cooper's hawk or a, hey they're birds, <laughs> birds. <laughs> daddy's gotta they, eat birds need to eat yeah but um i don't know i think i would probably reiterate what you'd read everywhere which is try to plant um food producing plants Native sure. native shrubs that produce berries and seeds, seed crops, and um, and if you did, if you were lucky enough to own some land to, and you wanted diversity, you'd want to manage it in a way that it's not uniform. Right, not a monoculture, exactly. not just all apple trees. I mean, unless you have an orchard, and that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like for your own land uh, at home or something, you want to attract a lot of animals have a lot of different types of plants. It's one of the things that makes, again, Central Park so amazing. Right. Oh, it's incredible, yeah. The diversity of trees and everything there. It's, you know, again, people kind of laugh and scratch their heads. Jay, you're coming down here to the middle of Manhattan and you live in Orange County, which is like the Garden yeah. of Eden. Well, it's a hotspot for, for bird watchers during the migration, for oh. sure. And um, what I love there are um, the elm trees. Oh, they're beautiful. Uh, and they're American elm trees, I believe. They are right in the, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but by the Bethesda Terrace, there's the sort of walk of the elms or something between like the Columbus statue and the, the terrace. It is beautiful. You know, when you're coming right from the uh, southernmost point. Okay. You know, uh, so Central Park South and you're, you're walking that. That's beautiful. So full confession, we were down there a couple of years ago on a rare bird alert because there was a... Um, 
Mandarin. Yeah, Mandarin duck. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, I've, yeah, yeah um, sure. I know them it well. It looks like a wood duck, but much more exotic. And, much more. Um, so it was, it was a, a funny day. We were down in the city and we're looking for this bird. Were you adding it to your list, Mike? Was it to count it? Yeah, it was the big, <laughs> I was trying to have a big year. Big year. And, um, and somebody pointed us in the right direction. And when we got there, and it was all the way at the southern end of the park, it, it sounded like a red carpet <clears throat> at the Oscars must sound. The camera shutters, there was a crowd absolutely <laughs> lining the shoreline of the pond three deep. Sure. And the constant buzz of cameras. Um, and and J-Lo and A-Rod being ignored three feet away. It was one away. bird, um, but it was an exotic and everybody was there to see it. That's wild. Well, yeah, Central Park is, it's, it's a gem. It, it really is. It really is. Oh, that's radical. Definitely. Locally, we often cross paths on little old Lo uh, Lower Wisner Road here in Warwick. Right, yes. Amazing spot. You know, big, flat, open, protected farmland. Thank you, Warwick Town Supervisor Mike Sweeten, for doing so Absolutely, much work with yeah. oh, preserving farmland here. And uh, the wildlife you see there is amazing. The pull-off, it looks like the town does a little extra work to mow the pull-off to make it easier for all of us <laughs> to park there. I mean, people yeah, walking. People are jogging. walking. Yes, yeah, all kinds of recreation down there. Um, in the in, during the season, every one of those—I don't know—there are a couple of dozen uh, nest boxes uh, occupied almost entirely with tree swallows, and yeah. they're just—they're just beautiful. It's a great bobolink site. It's an amazing um, bobolink and, site. And they don't mow it until after the bobolinks have completed their nesting cycle, which is wonderful. Yeah, shout out to the Crandall family, Crandall Hay, um, Crandall Hay Farm. They actually wait on those front two fields until the bobolinks have fledged their young and the young have flown away. And the hay is a lot less valuable at that point, unfortunately, but they wait so that they don't kill any baby birds because yeah, it's, it's a rare bird that comes all the way from South America. Not just Central, but South America right, up yes. here and then goes back. They leave in late July. They're gone on their way back to South America. Um, a great thing about, about both Wisners, Lower and Upper, um, and State School Road, the Belleville portion of it is, uh, we mentioned coyotes earlier um, and foxes. Those uh, mammals seem to be just hovering, waiting for the mowing to take place. And as soon as those fields are mowed, uh, when the hay is just laying there, sure. drying, it's a great time to go out and you'll see coyotes any time of any time of day, broad daylight. It's like watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> and I'm saying that laughing, but it has that feel. You just sit there in your car if you want that comfort and you're watching these coyotes just running around grabbing food, vultures flying in, yes, taking, yes. you know, taking food, red-tailed hawks. And I, I mentioned on a show here two weeks ago that uh well a little over two weeks ago i saw a peregrine go whipping uh over the road there and it made a few passes a nice peregrine falcon uh we see merlins there a lot they're you know smaller cousin uh, -huh. uh but it was wonderful to see a peregrine come through there wow. and yeah the birds of prey there are great and it's you know right on the downhill side of the mount peter hawk watch which is mm -hmm. great and people now go there to see the broadwing kettles are we a little late for the Broadwing Kettles? Are those mostly in September? You know, we've been meaning to get over there and I haven't yet. Um, so. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Not, not actually sure. Great. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a great area and even nearby, just across the Hudson from Bear Mountain, there are lizards 
Uh, yeah. Eastern fence whips. Fence lizards on uh, Anthony's nose. and um, Amazing. And we have skinks here, which are another lizard. Right. People are often shocked to know that here in New York State, we have two species of lizards right here, aside from the Italian wall lizards, an introduced lizard in the city and suburbs. H have you seen those, Mike? I've never seen those, no, no. But you've seen monk parakeets. Seen monk parakeets. At, uh, Edgewater, New Jersey is a great place to drive through, drive down River Road, and suddenly, instead of pigeons, you see these big green very loud birds crossing, you know, landing landing on the roadside and it's amazing. Massive twig nests up on the top of telephone poles. It's that's yeah. a it's an amazing part of the world. I mean, it seems we have everything and we we even have parakeets that make it over the winter. That's right. And Jersey. our own native parakeet is extinct for a, a, about over 150 years yeah, now. And I was gonna so, say close uh, to two hundred. These guys are back. They're not the same thing, but um it's great to see them. It really is. It really is. Well, Mike, it's really, as always, a pleasure to have you on. And uh, is there are there any words you'd like to leave uh, people with about all of this, or any, any you know any other spots they should see, or anything they should think about when they're outdoors, or teaching their kids about nature? Well, I I think it's just most important to to, to get out there. We talked a lot about ticks earlier in the in the program, and I, I feel you know ticks are a reason parents are telling their kids to stay away from nature or they're putting a scare into them by saying you know tuck your pants into your socks check for ticks and after a while you're like you know what maybe i'll just stay inside and uh you know yeah that's me some of the time yeah sure. sure and there is a risk there no question but but go out there and, and enjoy nature you're in an amazing part of the country yeah and, and there are yeah. good tick repellents available and i mean you absolutely and, I know this. and just change take a shower check your check everything and and um, to keep kids uh, not so afraid of nature too, I think is absolutely, important. absolutely. You know the things yeah. like the bears and stuff. Uh, I've seen it. You know, in decades of teaching, that, that the kids really uh, they they just light up when they're introduced to things that they never knew were there before out in uh, out in nature. That's great, and there's you know a a good thing to do during this pandemic, even as we get into the later autumn and uh, you know in, in, into the winter time. There's always Things are always changing. Different animals are moving in, others are moving out, and there's a lot to see. Oh, Mike, thanks thanks so much for coming in. I really, really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me, it's been fun. Oh, definitely, and uh, we, we, we certainly go back far enough. Yes, I, we do, yeah. Fourth grade, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. That's, that's a, it's a long life, um, and it, it's a great part of the world. Well, I hope uh, people will tune in again next Monday at 11 o'clock. And also this coming Saturday, I'll be on Stephen Keeter's show, Free Speech, where he talks about uh, local development issues. And uh, until then, have a great time.